I am proud to be part of a species where a subset of its members willingly put their lives at risk to push the boundaries of our existence. El podcast interplanetario. La exploración del espacio en beneficio de toda la humanidad. Sus anfitriones en Inglaterra y los Países Bajos, Matt Russell y Julio Aprea. Oh, oh yeah, baby. yeah, baby. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson, not the boxer, but the astrophysicist. Although, although I, I think he used to box or, or do some sort of uh, wrestling when he was at university. He's, he probably wouldn't bite your ear off like the other one. I don't think, if it was for science, I, I mean, he might do it. Do you know why I've chosen that, um, that quote? I could say I chose it for Richard Branson, but I did actually choose it for Bruce McCandless the second, who most of this podcast is going to be about. I think that's, you know, he kind of did put his life at risk. I, I think, around. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe the name might sound familiar only to some, but uh, Bruce McCandless the second is, in, I think, one of the most among the top 10 most famous photos from NASA, right? The yeah, lonely astronaut flying in, sp in space. Yeah. That has been I'm gonna used make, and I'm reused <laughs> and reused so many times for advertisements. Uh, actually, it must, yeah, it must be in the top, in the top five. Well, because the interview is with his son, and of course it must be weird, and he even mentions a story where he's driving down the road recently and sees his dad yeah. floating around for an advert for something. Well, in fact, I think... <laughs> Everyone thinks that that's how fl astronauts fly every day because of this yeah. single photo when it was only used a few times, but we'll go into details. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But we should also congratulate Sir Dickie Pickles, Richard Branson himself, because he's become the second oldest person ever to go to space. Brackets. Some people don't consider it space. Close bracket. First one, the first one being uh, John Glenn, right? John Glenn, 77. Richard Branson is going to be 71 in exactly a week. Why, why is age a thing here? If the point is to open space for everyone, right? Yeah, well, well, well actually, we, the age is quite a good one because I believe Wally Funk is going to be going up with Jeff Bezos. Yes, then she will actually, become the oldest. But why are we always looking for, for, for records? First. Yeah, records. No, I, I agree. You, you've got a bee in your bonnet about records, haven't you? You don't like the fact that uh, Buzz Aldrin is second person on the moon. If they, if they had been stranded, they were both stranded there. Not the first, not the second, but both of them. So, yeah. you know, it's always, it if it's a team effort, it's a team <laughs> effort, right? Is it is it because you're slightly bitter that you're not the first co-host on the podcast? You got me. You got me. <laughs> I will never get over Jamie. But Jamie, Jamie came first. So, sorry, Julio. I will. I but, will never be your first. <laughs> but I was. But anyway, I was the I first. I was. The, I think I was the first one that co-hosted uh, right after Jamie left. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm the first one at something. See, it records yeah. matter now. <laughs> anyway. By so, the way. So anyway. Uh, congratulations to Virgin Galactic. Have some. Yeah. Yeah. There are. They, there are. Some really, really cool people working there. Uh, I have to say I was more excited about uh, Sirisha Banla flying there more than Richard Branson. Because, mm. I don't know, just from the same crew of Space Generation people, we organized uh, some events at some point. So, you know, it just it's nice to see someone you know uh, achieving her dream 
You know, like billionaires get their get whatever they want all the time. But uh, mm. I, when I, I like to see people that put their efforts, you know, like uh, work it and and achieve their dreams. That to me is much more uh, motivational or inspirational than Branson. Yeah, I uh, know. I no, I totally agree. That I mean that 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 is awesome. I mean that is awesome. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I still don't know how long Virgin Galactic's going to be around for. Why, why do you say that? I think a lot of people are not convinced by the business case. <laughs> this one and the other one, first, second, Karman line, no Karman line, who cares, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, first, the first, it's not the first of anything because the first orbital flight was done uh, by, by Alan Shepard, who was not even first into space because that was Yuri Gagarin. So after Gagarin and, and Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin, what's there to, to do? What was yeah. left there? You know, it's, after that, you, st- you have to start cherry picking, you know, like uh, we are the first ones of this, in this situation, in this situation, in this situation. And once you have to narrow it down so much, that record doesn't matter so much anymore, right? True. Although I'm going to be pretty chuffed when I'm the first man on Mars. That's got to be a record, right? That I could get. Well, that would be the first man on another planet. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. I it? think that one would count. <laughs> but that one is the, that, that that first person on Mars is the only one that can trump uh, Apollo Eleven and Yuri Gagarin. Yeah, that's the, yeah. the okay. First, and further on, maybe more interesting. But actually, yeah. no. Actually, I think Mars would be the big one because it's the first time we would be on another planet, right? But we're talking, we're talking about a lot about records, something I'm yeah. against. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's because I knew it was winding up. So like, like, like Julio, Julio. I tell you how, much, to- how little I care about records that apparently Argentina won something some days ago. Um, um, some football game. This is, I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with, with that sport. I am. Can, uh, listeners, just so you're aware, it is now like 30 minutes into the England game and Julio is definitely some is, 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 is stalling so I can't watch the football match. That's how committed I am to the podcast. I'm not watching the England final of the European but, Championship. But Matt, ah. why, why suffer during those 90 plus minutes when you, that is, when you can just at the true. end just find out the result? Like today, that the Virgin Electric flight. I did not watch it. I just waited until the end and then saw the results. Why stress yourself during those times? It's not stress that belongs to you. Why live through that suffering? That 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 so got you've got a good point, but maybe sort of short term stress is sometimes quite nice. Uh, yeah, but when it's something that is worth it, what what is worth of? <laughs> now we're going deep. I'm, I'm going to make some enemies, but what is exciting about watching like twenty two guys running after a, a ball? Or Fair or enough. what is? <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe you can say it's like watching a movie why watch a movie when you can i can just tell you the 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 ending, the ending right i guess if you enjoy it as, as i will enjoy a movie but yeah listeners don't get don't get too discouraged by julio right julio what i wanted to talk about yeah. because we've got bruce mccandless the third on yeah. is 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 his dad and more more actually one aspect of what Bruce McCandless the second did, and that is the MMU and similar sorts of things. Man man maneuvering unit. Yeah. Which now would be the human maneuvering unit. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. These days be, yeah. of political correctness, I guess it would be called the HMU, right? The HMU, yeah, it probably would be. Yeah? Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think you're actually right. I actually think you probably are absolutely right with that. Well, this was a sort of propulsion unit, like, especially on, on, on its own. You know how we always talk about, like, a, a, an astronaut's spacesuit is mm. a self-contained spaceship, but with limited propulsion because normally you're tethered. But this mm. is the propulsion system for that one-person spaceship. And I think it's, uh, you saw it, in, you, you see it in the photos. It's one of the coolest lookings, I think. You found some in the history that we will go in details yeah. that look even more <laughs> insane. Um, but yes, that, that photo that, that shows you in space is, I would find it terrifying to be disconnected f from, the, from the shuttle or, or, the, or the station or whatever you are. Yeah, no, it, it's clearly got to be incredibly stressful to be in in just like yeah. untethered on 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 something like that but yeah by the way it's, it's, this hardware unit was used three times in three missions not three times in three missions and uh yeah but since then it seems to be like the go-to for every movie when you they show yeah. astronauts in space they are always using this uh but if you want we, we can see what these three missions were yeah the first mission where the mmu was tested was space shuttle mission 41B, and uh, well, this is where Bruce McCandless the uh, second tested the, the MMU with Robert Stewart, and uh, yes, this was in February seventh, nineteen eighty four. The second mission, and this was a big selling point for the MMU. Uh, one of the, I mean, one of the big selling points of the MMU, uh, the, the way that they got it approved was. Uh, as a sort of satellite servicing device that you can go and capture satellites to bring them back in the shuttle and, and service them, right? Which is interesting. It's interesting that he was working on servicing back then because later we're going to go into Hubble with him, right? I don't know much about that kind of stuff, but it seems to me quite crazy to approach a satellite while sort of flying this one personal spacecraft and because... And, Presumably, the satellite is moving in its own kind of way. Presumably, if you have the satellite non-functional, and if it had some abnormal rotation, if you would not align and try to grab it, you could be flung, flung yeah, away. spun off. Yes, <laughs> um, indeed. Well, by now we know the ending. That I mean, this was used only a few times, and and now we use the robotic arms to to deal with these sort of things especially during the shuttle era, they moved to that. But let's go into those details later. So the second mission of the MMU um, was in the shuttle mission 41C, where astronauts Jane van Hoften, I guess from a Dutch family, <laughs> Dutch origins, <laughs> and George Nelson. Who sounds like he's from an English family. But who knows? Well, I mean, uh, Nelson, it's like, it's like Perez in Spanish, right? Every uh, <laughs> <laughs> third British is a Nelson. So, yeah, no, anyway, this, in this second mission, uh, this, these two astronauts uh, attempted to use it to capture the, the solar maximum spacecraft that was malfunctioning. Every development needs funding. Mm. That funding allocated to the MMU a big part of it was because you could sell that missions where you spent billions of dollars 
and you have a malfunction in the space that you can recover them and not just waste those taxpayer money uh, funds. This is pretty interesting because it really did not work as, as planned, right? Hmm. No. Do you want to go into the details? Well, I mean, the details, as far as I understand it, is that they, the, what they're trying to do is attach something to the satellite so that they can then pull it back into the shuttle payload bay for storage and then bring it back down to be repaired. They're not going to try and attempt repairing it in space, are they? I don't know. Actually, let's find out if the Solar Maximum mission was brought, brought back to Earth or not. Oh, yeah, the second objective STS-4 was to capture, repair, and redeploy. So, yes, it did. So they put it into the, into the, into the bay, repaired it, and then redeployed it. Yeah, you save a launch. If you, can, if you can repair it in space, much better, right? Yeah, God. I mean, so, I mean, that's, I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? So, but the, basically, the astronauts that had, the, the astronaut that had flown over, James Van Hoften and George Nelson, were flying over in their MMUs, trying to grapple with this with this satellite but presumably <laughs> uh the, the the satellite would uh, would they would tr they were trying to to null the rate of this thing like rotating around using the mmo the mmu to to try and you know as in using their own kind of propulsion to try and stop this thing from spinning but it it was getting worse and worse and worse to the point where ground control basically had to step in and control the satellite properly from the ground to get it stable again. And it almost was ripped to pieces by its own kind of tumble or whatever. And so they were actually really lucky to actually recover the, the mission altogether. So the MMU hadn't really worked at all by the sounds of it. Yeah, what I found interesting um, in, in our research was uh, that the plan was to use the, the the MMU to to grapple the solar maximum uh, with the what they call it trunion pin attachment device or TPAD mounting between the hand controllers of the MMU to, as you said to null its rotation rates and allow the shuttle to bring it into the payload for for you know for stowage mm. and, and servicing but these attempts failed because the jaws of this T-pad could not lock into the onto the solar max because there was an obstructing grommet oh, on the yeah, satellite, right. not including the blueprints of for the, for the satellite. And I recall reading this sort of uh, event in Kathy Sullivan's book. And yeah, it makes sense. You make your blue. I mean, maybe these days you can update the blueprints as you go because we live in this digital age. But back in those days. You design the spacecraft, you make your blueprints, then it goes to production. And if last minute, you know, they have to make some changes. It's not ideally all those changes should have been documented into the blueprint, but it could happen that, I don't know, some technician last minute had to make a call and then it's not documented. And people on the ground are working on the blue uh, with their blueprints as reference because they don't have a view of how the satellite looks in real time, right? So this shows how in, how important it is to, to document if you make changes to your <laughs> spacecraft. You launch a space Thanks shuttle. To, yeah. You have people uh, doing uh, doing a spacewalk with this uh, this MMU device, and you cannot grapple because someone forgot to update the blueprints. It's crazy. Yeah, 
I mean, yeah, and it and I guess the knock-on effect of that is you kind of just like I said, it, it, it you feel as though you've lost faith in doing it via the MMU because they were able to go and grab you know grapple this thing with the with the orbit with the shuttle's robotic arm the you know the the SRMS or the Canadarm as most people refer to it and it, so they so it's like well if we can grab it with the Canadarm why bother risking a couple of astronauts it does seem a little bit it seems like it was a, a sort of over-engineered um, approach to, to going out and getting satellites. Well, Matt, if you could go and get a lunar sample with a robot, why would you ever send a human? <laughs> I mean, with, with that, that reasoning, a... do, yeah. I mean, let's face it, we, we don't need humans in space. We do it we for... Don't even, need, don't even need them on Earth. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Radical. Just, <laughs> is, there, is there something you want to share with us? Um, well, we don't meaning, I, I don't want to what I, I mean, what, nice. what I mean what I mean is yes, with robots, robotic arms, we can do certain things. And the precision, the strength the robots bring the robots bring that humans are there for the um unexpected. Although in this case there was something unexpected and the, the robot fixed it, I understand where you're going. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for the for the unexpected, for the adaptability, right? As as they as you normally get comments on the sort of, well, we are spending so many billions to send these spacecrafts to Mars just to look at some samples in a certain way. Well, if you could put a human there. You could do a lot more science and determine much quicker if there's life on Mars or not, instead of going over decades and decades of mission after mission after mission. Yeah, potentially. Although that's that's argue. one of the reasonings. I mean, that's yeah. I don't mean I I I necessarily agree with it. I mean that's 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 what you normally say to justify it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I I'll totally well. The good thing, I mean, this is all happening in 1984. There's another mission, STS-51A, which is uh, Joe Allen and Dale Gardner, and they did manage to fly out to two satellites, the Westar 7 and the Palapar B2, and drag them back to the orbiter payload bay, to the shuttle payload bay, and return. So those ones did return to Earth. So they, they, were, they were faulty, got them back on, the shuttle brought them back to Earth to be repaired. I wonder if they went back up. I would have thought they did. I mean, otherwise, what was, was the point in recovering them, right? Oh, yes. So they, they were. Relaunch, it was reflown. Yeah. Reflown. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, if the satellite is not really functioning and you're going to recover it and you spend the, you spend the cost of recovering it with the shuttle and bringing it back... You better launch it again, right? <laughs> yeah, it's God. Imagine how expensive that thing is to to, to put that effort into to go and get it and. But that, bring that it was back at the Earth. time the thinking, you know, like you could bring them back. Shuttle is easy, flying every week or every month or and yeah. or a few times a month, and then servicing them, upgrading the computer, sending them back up. It didn't turn out like that for <laughs> mostly for Does economic reasons. <laughs> Does it feel like we've gone a little bit backwards like that? As in, it almost seems too radical for words, doesn't it, to go up and grab a satellite and bring it back? 
I mean, now that that sounds amazing. Okay, there was a whole architecture at the time with the shuttle, with humans. The, the shuttle was supposed to do everything. And someday we can talk about how the, the, the shuttle having to do everything meant so many requirements from so many actors that ended up ended up hurting the design of the shuttle. And eventually how the Ariane rocket was at the right moment at the right time to capture the market that the shuttle left behind. But I think that's a whole episode mm. that we can do on, on the history of that someday. Yeah. I don't think we haven't gone backwards. I, sometimes we thought of certain ways of doing things and sometimes it takes an event or something to w- make you wake up and, and realize that maybe it's just easier but hasn't Elon Elon Musk's been making some kind of mutterings, hasn't he, recently about gobbling up satellites and debris with his starship? Well, getting rid of space debris is a completely different topic than recovering and servicing. What I was trying to say here is that right now there are actually some existing serving, successful servicing missions. Okay, so these yeah. uh, MEV type of missions like MEV, mm. MEV2 launching on, on a, an Ariane 5 last year, right? Yeah. Um, that they can just dock, and instead of repairing the satellite, some of them can refuel it, or some of them can just grab it and take control and keep it working for a few more years. And, yeah. I mean, it's in the name, mission extension. This means that for a fraction of the cost of developing a whole new satellite, that company, like in this case, Intelsat, can benefit from the revenue generated by but that satellite for a number more of years. It's probably a very interesting return investment to keep that thing working for longer than you expected at the fraction of the cost of putting a new one up there, right? Of mm. course, at some point, you might need a more power, powerful payload, more functional payload, and eventually you need new newer satellites. But I... I sort of like this whole maintainability, serviceability um, aspects. We will talk about it a little bit later. In fact, missions like the MEV are not necessarily... <laughs> okay, you, you enter into this sort of design philosophy in which do you make the satellites serviceable or not? I was mm. going to... I said we were going to go into it later, but... Let's just go into it now, you know. Um, makes me think of those old designs of cars, like, I don't know, 60s and 70s, that they were meant to be for the owner to repair himself. Well, now if you get any car for the most minimal thing, you kind of have to take it to the garage, right? Mm-hmm. But a, there is a whole philosophy on, on design to if you want to make it serviceable or not. So for now, you can have these sort of missions that go to satellites that were not designed with service in mind and overtake them in not so subtle ways. But eventually, if you have satellites with like standard ports and interfaces, there's a lot of literature on that. Um, yeah, you could have a whole architecture of, of repairs. You could uh, replace solar panels for new ones, just like we do in the space station, but automatically, I would find the prequel if we went that way. Yeah, I mean that, that that does seem to be the way forward. I wonder what the I wonder what the block is there. Just talking about refueling, you could change the solar panels or so, or other subsystems. You could upgrade the payload with a new computer, just similar to the mm. sort of work done on Hubble, but automatically, without putting humans yep. at risk. Pretty cool, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. Uh, you could even, I guess, even replace fuel tanks if they were sort of modular things that would just snap on and snap off. Yeah. Although there's a lot of plumbing there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> That's hard to do. But, Matt, but look, at, hey, look at how much I am going away from the topic just to keep you away from your football game. <laughs> yeah, I know. You are, mi- you I would are really say, mean. I, I would say uh, let's uh, just go back to our topic today of the MMU yeah, for now yeah. and other okay, sort cur- of uh, propulsion devices. Just, just so listeners are aware, I am keeping a tab on it. It's currently one nil to England, and it's half time. This is very exciting. Um, <laughs> Matt, that game is just one game of many. This podcast is his, is for history. Exactly, for this decades. Is, this, this, this will go on forever. This will still be relevant in in four years' time, and that game won't be. Uh, okay, Julio, yep. why is it? Do you think that the MMU, after sort of using it three times in 1984. And then the, on that third mission, it was, you know, successfully used. It's something that is iconic. It's pretty much how everyone sees astronauts flying around in space and think that that's how it's done, particularly when they look at George Clooney in gravity. So why did it get retired, do you think? Well, we are all aware of the of what happened to the Challenger, right? And mm-hmm. there, there was mm-hmm. a big, big safety review uh, right after, with participa- participation from people like Feynman, okay, mm-hmm. or I don't know if I should mention Bob Sick or not. Yeah, yeah, we can mention. Okay, Bob we Sick. have the interview in the can. So he he was he was a legend, and uh, during those times as well, and uh, we will release that interview at some point. There was a whole review of what the ch- what really the shuttle was needed for and not, and there were several changes. One of them, for instance, not using the MMU. But others, well, the shuttle now yeah. uh, will not be used any longer for commercial missions. It was a major review for for the space shuttle program, and it certainly uh, reduced the the scope of missions that the shuttle would do. Main many or one of the, its main purposes after was all about assembly of the space station. Hmm. That was absolutely needed for that. But where the shuttle was not needed, you would choose another type of vehicle that would be safer. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it got to the point where they would have a shuttle on standby just in case the shuttle that had gone up (laughs) was in trouble. I mean, it's like that's suddenly they realized that it was a little bit of a death trap. No, no, I would not call it that trap. I mean, well, I mean, shuttle, I, mean I, 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 one of my biggest regrets is probably not seeing a shuttle launch, uh, and I oh, think God, it's yeah. it's an amazing machine. And like I said earlier, I think one of the tragedies was what what you call a requirement creep up. You know, like uh, yeah. You start with an idea, simple, concrete, you want to build that, and then you have more and more users or, or uh, stakeholders involved that wanted to use in another way and say, no, it has to be bigger, it has to do this, it has to do that, and then you end up with a very, very complex machine. But still, probably my most favorite and the most amazing spaceship we will have for decades because now we want to keep it simple. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think if we really are going to be seeing Starship flying, I think that's going to be that's going to be up there as well, isn't it? As you know, up there with the space shuttle, surely. 
Although I do agree, the space shuttle, when you see it taking off and just the, the absolutely insanity of what that looks like. No, no, I mean, who can tell about history in a few decades from now, but the shuttle was space for a couple of mm. decades. That's yeah. all you got, uh, apart from Mir, of course, that also so spectacular. So, like I said, for me, the, the, the shuttle is one of the most amazing machines we have. And, well, it went how it went, yeah. but we learned a lot from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Incredible. Um, so yeah. So the, so the MMU, yeah, they, 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 they canceled it essentially as part of a safety review. So there's the, the two, the two MM units, the MMU hash two and the MMU hash three that were flown. You can actually go see them at, um, the national air and space museum. And the other one is at the space and rocket center in Huntsville in Alabama. So yeah, they're they're actually all on display. The the mock up one that never flew is at the Johnson Space Center as well. We should we should do a space tour at some point when we can travel again. Oh my god! Oh totally! I well I really plan on doing that. Rent next a year. van and and travel uh, travel through all these uh, uh, U.S. museums of space and related items memorabilia and and meet uh, meet the audience as we go. Oh, absolutely. We, we've um, there's members of the audience who uh, offered to put us up as well, and I and uh, so I'll be I'll go back through my emails. Who knows? Even <laughs> go, even maybe that, even, even maybe record some episodes on the road. That would be quite an adventure. Yeah, I'll, oh, it'd be absolutely amazing. Yeah, we should we should totally do that. I I I really really want to do that next year. The Russians had one as well. Oh, the the Russians had an ace one. It was called the SPK. It was tested on Mir on the Mir space station to, to, to get round, yeah, the Mir space station to parts where you couldn't get. But they realized, actually, it was easier, a bit like, you know, the conclusion before, that it was easier to use the Strayler crane, which was similar no. um, to the mobile servicing system. So it's it's it, it ended up not really being useful either. No. <laughs> and, and the actual, I, I believe that the SPK, was attached to to one of the modules of the Mir when it re-entered and was burnt up in the atmosphere. Yeah, so we cannot see it in the museum. No, so no no museum. There's the 21KS, which is a redesign of the Orland spacesuit, which is which has like a sort of inbuilt uh, system as well. But um, I'm going to go right back because I think definitely the BIS, the British Interplanetary Society, deserve a bit of a shout out here because. In 1949, H.E. Ross and R.A. Smith, and I've brought this book up before. In fact, I've got, I've got my copy of it here, The Exploration of the Moon by R.A. Smith with Arthur C. Clarke as the, as the um, writer of the words. But there's some great pictures in there, and one of them is of an astronaut in, in the spacesuit that you can actually go see at the Leicester Space Center. There's a replica of this spacesuit, which is one of the very first designs of spacesuit. I think you should add this. This photo is amazing. This drawing, it's, this concept it, is amazing. It, you should add it into the show notes. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. The, 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 it's, it's one of my favorite drawings because it's, it's, there's a sort of very comedic <laughs> element to it. But the, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a sort of self-maneuvering kind of uh, little jet that you hold in your hands and uh you can a bit like in the film wally where he's flying around with the fire extinguisher. or gravity it's a bit yeah or gravity yeah yeah where that yeah 
where you can kind of fly around. Well, yeah. well here is 1949. There is that concept right away yeah. from the BIS, and that was all sort of written up in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. But I think at some, one, point, at some point we realised that orbital mechanics are a little bit more complicated than pointing a bottle to get somewhere. Well, you, you say that, but Ed White did it. There was a thing called the zip gun Yes, that they used. Yes, and it was complicated. This is exactly what I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to use. Michael Collins used it, Gemini and Gemini Ten, uh, and Ed White on Gemini Four. So, and then it's, you have the uh, in 1966 the astronaut maneuvering unit or AMU. Yeah, how does that work? Was that like an? Was that that's another backpack type thing? So that must be the predecessor. It was using hydrogen peroxide as the fuel. Oh, this is the one. This is the one where they have to have metal pants, isn't yeah. it? Because you can, <laughs> metal because pants. You, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's big, big, yeah. Metal pants is, is, yeah. is the the name of my <laughs> so, is, the, is the name of my heavy metal uh, cover band. <laughs> Woven metal pants made of chromal R metal cloth. That's that's um, yeah. So the AMU was cool, actually. More performant than the MMU. Yeah. Um, however, it was never tested. During the interview, he goes into the tale of Gene Cernan and what happened. Yeah. yeah. But yes, that oh. the, this idea that, um, I mean, it, it's it's a hot gas uh, propel, propulsion. So mm. the astronaut had to wear, as you said, woven metal pants uh, made of chromal R metal cloth just to not run away <laughs> which also gives you a solution for jetpacks but i guess wearing metal pants makes you heavier therefore you have to have more performance uh it's always the same eh? more payload yeah. you need more fuel uh, and then more, more fuel means you need you need more more metal on your pants exactly oh it's the it's the Oh, so pesky, isn't it? The, the old orbital orbital mechanics and everything else to do with well, rockets. The, 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 the good old uh, rocket equation. Yeah, so th there wasn't much need for EVA during Apollo and Skylab, but they did test a couple of things on Skylab, which was a, a, another precursor to the MMU, which was the ASMU, the Automatically Stabilised Manoeuvring Unit, 1973. So that was tested on Skylab 3 and 4 missions. They never went outside with those because they didn't want to damage the solar arrays on the Apollo telescope. Right. So so they were very very careful they also had a they also had a foot controlled one as well the fcmu which they tested on skylab but by the way uh short segue here but um I, you actually uh, spoiler i actually listened to the interview before this yeah, <laughs> recording yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys talk a little bit about dick slayton who is a legend, legend. and um in his autobiography, he mentioned that the AMU that we were talking shortly before, the, the one that Gene Sarnan was supposed to test, um, what may have been developed because the Air Force, the, the United States Air Force, thought they might have the chance to inspect someone else's satellites. Yeah. I wonder... Well of what nationality would those satellites would be. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Well, We're talking I mean, I the guess, 60s. Yeah, I mean, actually, 
that really would be a major use, wouldn't it, of the MMU if you were flying up? Because a visual inspection by a human at that point probably is considerably better than a visual inspection well, by there a, was no, a robot. There was no digital photography. Hmm. Oh, actually, I don't know if at that time they were still using film or not on those missions. But the, you would not have the resolution that a human yeah. could provide. Um, yeah. And, I mean, obviously, you this would be, I would assume this would be for stealth inspection. Because yeah. if you, I mean, if you do something to a satellite, probably a telemetry, they could tell. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but if you go over with a torch and just have a look at it, what does it do? It's amazing. Uh, maybe you would depends what kind of torch need. you don't want to <laughs> with an actual torch <laughs> oh, yeah anyway. i mean it's, uh yeah but, but, vandalism in space maybe they would vandalism. maybe they could leave a graffiti on it so what are they left with now they left uh, he, 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 um bruce mccandless does mention this in the in the interview doesn't it it's safer is the thing that they're left with now yeah which is just which in case is, of emergencies yeah you don't you don't ever use it but did you know that Safer was almost ended in disaster with with a English-born uh, um, space shuttle astronaut, Piers Sellers, um, on STS-121 when he was um, testing shuttle repair techniques? Um, the latch of the Safer unit unlatched, uh, and Mike Fossum had to tether to him to continue the spacewalk. Um, and then after that, the latches are secured with captain tape, which is the equivalent of the roadie method of putting gaffer tape on everything. Fine, but <laughs> Sellers was not untethered. No. So he wasn't at risk. It's more like you add an extra tether because you want to have a double uh, redundancy for, for, for double failure, right? So the, so the safer is acting as your dual redundant system your 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 second safety system I don't know the when, when they did that uh right now uh i think they tethered twice or what is it two, two or three mm. times two or three te separate tethers that they they use and uh, yeah mark lee and carl mead actually flew the safer uh up and around the shuttle's robotic arm as a demonstration um which um yeah, it seems pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. so I wonder they they must have been they must have been tethered, surely. Yeah. But yeah. But enough of technical we... talk and speculation. I have to say yeah. I really enjoy this uh, interview and I, I can't wait for the audience to, to listen to Yeah, it. yeah. He's he's such a lovely guy, Bruce McCandless the third. I really, really liked him. And uh yeah, he'd he'd actually listened to the podcast. He, he knew all your names. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> although although he did he did say that Lean is his, his, his favorite co-host. So now yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I, I, it was oh, is that why you uh, is that why you don't like first? Oh, such a pity. Hey, well, Lean is also my favorite co-host. <laughs> well, I I couldn't possibly say who my favorite co-host is. It's Lynn, everyone. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> That'd be awful, right? Um, um, of course, it's Jamie. Everyone knows it's Jamie. Um, shall we have a Shall we have a, a listen to the uh, the interview? Écoutez. Oh, he stole it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace 
Back into space! I am joined on the podcast by Bruce McCandless III. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. In the UK, we don't know many of the American shuttle astronaut names, but I do think, actually, Bruce McCandless the second is certainly one of the ones that I think a lot of kind of space enthusiasts know, and it's mainly because of that super iconic image of your dad floating in space untethered yeah 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 that was uh that that i think is i i i think i'm justified in saying that's one of one of the iconic nasa uh space photos you know you got uh, the the earthrise photo from uh from apollo 8 and you've got uh uh, Buzz Aldrin on the moon, and and um, and of course from from Hubble, you got the the, the pillars of creation shot. Uh, but I, I do think that the the, the photograph uh, taken by Hoot Gibson of Bruce McCandless, uh, um, I don't know if you describe it as propelling away, drifting, uh, not not drifting, but uh, but moving away uh, from the shuttle. Um, uh, with the man maneuvering unit back in 1984, I think I, th- I do think that's one of one of the great images from from our early uh, early days of, of space exploration. Rob, but b- before we do a deep dive into your book, because I mean this is one of the reasons why you're on. You've got you've got a book out about your dad and and his his journey. Before we d- dive into that, um, how, how old were you when 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 your dad did that untethered space flight? I was. Um, I was 22, and I was in, actually in England when it happened. I was at the University of Reading. I was a, a, a graduate student um, there, and uh, I saw most of it. Um, well, whatever I saw, I saw on, on British television. And and um, I don't, Matthew, I think I'm a little older than you. You may not remember it, but but uh, the footage was not all that uh, compelling. At the time, in fact, it was it was Hoot Gibson's photograph. I think more than anything else, that sort of captured the uh, the, the majesty of the of the moment, and, and has has sort of um, you know locked that image into our minds. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think I do think it was the photograph rather than the video imagery from from that flight. No, I, I I think you're definitely right. I mean, I do I do actually remember it because you know, I, uh, being a space nut, I do actually remember the the, the footage. But I, I definitely think that in the public imagination, it's all it. I think everyone assumes that that all spa- that all EVAs are done in that manner as well. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, what did you think when you saw? Have you seen the film Gravity, where George Clooney is whizzing around? Absolutely, I've, I've seen Gravity. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a souped-up version of the MMU for sure. Um, the MMU or, or jetpack-like devices uh, they show up in a number of films. There, there was one made in 1969 called Marooned. I don't know. If, I don't know if you remember this film. It's not a great, great movie, but basically, uh, American astronauts go up to what looks like the Skylab space station. Uh, they perform experiments with uh, with a fledgling MMU. Um, later, they they go to return to Earth, and, they, and there's a malfunction in the spacecraft, and they're they're as the title implies, they're marooned in space. And uh, Gene Hackman is one of the astronauts, and uh, David Jansen's another, and and uh, um, <coughs> Uh, was it Peter Franciscus, I think, is the third big, good-looking guy, and and uh, 
and and Gene Hackman goes crazy, and and uh, David Jansen sacrifices himself for the good of the crew, and and eventually a Soviet cosmonaut shows up in a, in a Soyuz and attempts to rescue him, and uh, all he has is a uh, you know, he doesn't have an MMU. He's, he's has to try to use his tether to work himself over to the American spacecraft, and he doesn't make it. But uh, fortunately, another American astronaut shows up and, and uh, in some version of the X-24 space plane, and he does have an MMU, and he manages to come over and and, uh, and save the two uh, surviving American astronauts. And and so that's another example of, of how jetpacks, um, you know, they've captured the American imagination or the the, 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 uh, the imagination of people who are interested in space exploration. But uh, for now, at least, they're 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 not being used, um, except in some vestigial sense, in in, in, in that uh, you know the safer device, which is the you know the mini jetpack that the astronauts wear these days uh, on the ISS when they go to do EVAs. That's the descendant of the man maneuvering in it. Um, you know, NASA decided that the MMU wasn't going to be used in, in its uh, 1984 configuration, and it was eventually adapted by uh, by Joe Kerwin, among others, as uh, as what we call now the, the safer device. That's a self-assisted uh, rescue device, basically. You get pangs of pride when you see films with <laughs> with that kind of. Jetpack. I mean, the I mean the George Clooney one in particular because it is so reminiscent of that. that Absolutely, that image, and I, I, I can't I can't watch anything these days without uh, figuring you know without watching with interest to see how the astronauts are going to um, uh, yeah. maneuver outside uh, one of their space vehicles. But I think uh, um, I, you know I just read um, Project Hail Mary, Andy Weir's book um, uh, about uh, you know contact with uh, with the. Uh, I won't. I don't want to reveal oh, anything yeah. <laughs> about the book, but needless to say, uh, there's uh, there are sequences where where the astronaut in, in Andy Weir's book goes outside the spacecraft and, and uh, uh, needs to maneuver around. And I couldn't help thinking that things would have been easier with a with a, an MMU. Uh, uh, and 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 so you know, and then. In the Martian, you know, you may recall Jessica Chastain rescues uh, the the uh, the main character using a using a jetpack, and 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 uh, so yeah, it's 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 fascinating to see that and, and to, to wonder what's going to happen in the future. I, I I think that the MMU or the jet you know some jetpack device is going to make a comeback one of these days as we become more comfortable with the the risks involved in in, in moving around outside uh, uh, of a space vehicle. Yeah, I'm, well, it's certainly one of the coolest things that's ever been in space. Um, you've written a a, a, a book and, a, about a Bruce McCandless II. Tell us a little bit about why you thought you were going to, because obviously you're, you're a writer yourself and you've, you know, an accomplished writer. Why, why this project and where you chose to start from in this project as well? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't really my story to tell. It's my dad's story to tell, and and he was not without a sense of uh, of, of ego. He was a smart smart individual. Uh, he he was uh, proud of his ability, his engineering abilities. But he was he was not the kind of person who would talk about himself or talk about his accomplishments um, and, and to to a almost to a debilitating extent uh, career wise. He was a very um, unassuming wasn't the kind of person who liked to uh like i say advance his own his own interests uh and so you know during the course of his life uh he was approached uh, at least three times by people who wanted to write his story 
Uh, and he, he, for whatever reason, didn't feel like doing it. Uh, didn't feel like it was worth telling. I don't, I don't know exactly what, what, what the issue was, but uh, not long before he died in 2017, he, he changed his mind. And uh, actually uh, during a visit to, uh, to Great Britain, when he was speaking in, in Pontefract up in, uh, I think that's up in Yorkshire. Yep. Yeah. He had discussed uh, the autobiography with some folks up there and they'd actually come up with a title uh, untethered, uh, which he, he really liked. Uh, but before he could, he could, he could really get started on it. Um, he, he fell ill and, and died um, in, in December of 2017. This was an attempt uh, to, to, to write the story he would have written. I mean, I, I don't have the technical expertise to do that. So I, I, su- I suspect the book suffers in that, that regard. On the other hand, um, because he was so unassuming, I feel like sometimes he missed some of the drama uh, in his life. And, and, and I've, I've tried to, uh, to tell that, to tell the human story uh, at least as much as the engineering story. You know, I, I hope I've, I hope I've conveyed uh, some of the arc of his uh, his life and career in the book. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the sort of one of the story arcs that comes out virtually instantly is is how long it took him to get his first flight. Being that he was <laughs> he was in with one of you know the very first Apollo astronauts, and then the Apollo program stopped, <laughs> and then he has to yeah, wait a yeah, long no, time. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. So, so yeah, as you point out, he's uh, he was he was picked in uh, uh, Group Five uh, in in April of 1966, uh, and and that group uh, was was identified in, in, in the newspapers as as hey, this is these are the Apollo astronauts, um, and, and indeed many of them did fly on Apollo, and 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 I have a, I have a photograph of him uh, in a little news story from one of the papers out in California where he was at the time. Uh, with the with the headline, I'm I'm off to moon. I'm off to the moon, dear. And <laughs> photograph of him and little little uh, bio. But uh, uh, things didn't work out for him, as you know. He he, like I said, he was he was in Group Five. Um, he he was um, he was the youngest of that group, and for a while was the youngest uh, of the astronauts. Period. Uh, he was a, a sort of a prodigy. Uh, he he had um, gone to the Naval Academy, uh, finished second in his class. Became a, a fighter pilot, uh, went on to study at Stanford University, and and, uh, and earned his Master of Science degree in one year, and had done the coursework for his PhD in another another year, and, and was working on his dissertation when he was uh, selected to be you know, part of the group. Uh, we moved to Houston, and and he seemed to be you know right on track, and and, and the best evidence of that is that he was uh, given this plum assignment of being the capsule communicator. Um, for Apollo 11, and so when you know Charlie Duke handled the Capcom duties when when uh, the Eagle was uh, descending to the lunar surface, but it was uh, Bruce McCandless who was actually talking to uh, to Neil and Buzz when when they uh, when they first set foot on the moon, and and you can still hear his voice on a lot of those you know on those old recordings, and it's it's uh, it's pretty cool, and what a, what what a great spot to be in, um, and and you know as you know Charlie Duke and and uh, and Fred Hayes and, and some of the other some of the other folks from Group Five went on to uh, Apollo assignments and, and uh, went to the moon, but his career something happened uh, and and he was he was essentially uh, he was essentially sidelined. Uh, he he uh, didn't go up on Apollo, didn't go up on Skylab, didn't get a chance to go up on the Apollo Soyuz test project, 
and it was it was unclear uh, for a long time whether he'd whether he, whether he'd get a shuttle assignment. And, and and I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about that because that was sort of the um, that that's what I remember most about uh, about growing up and, and family life is this uh, you know this wondering when when uh, when dad was going to get a flight and and uh, uh, what happened and and, and uh, you know my my uh, my mom and uh, <laughs> my mom and my uh, my mother was a was just a completely unobjective uh, partisan for my dad and and uh, so my mom my my sister and I were like the, um, the the three witches from Macbeth we were concocting all kinds of uh, theories but uh, uh, you know dad never complained about it he he stuck around but uh, you know something definitely happened that derailed his career and he had to work very hard to sort of get back in the uh, the good graces of NASA and to get that uh, get that shuttle flight in 1984. And and you have no sort of clue about what that incident or what that sort of well yeah no we we have <laughs> we do, we do have clues I mean uh, Rick Houston and Milt Heflin wrote a book Milt Heflin wrote a book uh, called Go Flight uh, in which they discuss uh, an incident and I, and I talk about it in the book in, in which um, you know Dad as as Cap, Capcom was uh, was was you know doing his duties that day talking to uh, to, to Armstrong and Aldrin and according to the book. Um, Slayton, Deke Slayton, who was uh, who was sort of the you know king of the astronauts, and especially to someone like my dad, who was a who was a who was a rookie. Um, Slayton came over and and uh, and said to to my dad as Capcom, "Hey, um, <clears throat> bring him in." And of course, you know Bruce McCandless didn't have any authority to to bring in the astronauts, and and it, uh, that wasn't a directive that had come from the flight director, and and. Uh, and so he was put in this difficult position. Uh, 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 what to do? You've got your boss on one hand, and you've got your your protocols and, and everything you practiced on the other, and maybe your loyalty even to the astronauts on the moon. Uh, and and uh, he he basically ignored Slayton. Uh, and and the idea is that um, by ignoring Slayton, he may have been ignoring even Chris Kraft. And and. Uh, the sense is that um, that he offended Slayton, and, and uh, Slayton didn't like being offended, and uh, um, that that didn't help his chances. Now there there were other other things that that that, that probably affected the whole uh, long wait, but but that's uh, certainly uh, one important factor. Wow. Yeah, that's that's that that seems exceptionally tough on him. I mean, it, it, well, well, yeah. I mean, Matthew, <laughs> think about that. I mean, you, you know. You, like, and my dad once said he was sort of like a god uh, to, to me and the other uh, the other guys there. And, and uh, you know, what what do you do? This is the most important, one of the most important moments in the history of the world. And, and uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are up there on the moon. The world is watching, and and uh, and, and Slayton tells you to bring them in. <laughs> you know, what do you do? Uh, so so, you know that that um, it was a tough spot. Like I said. You know, there were other things. I mean, he wasn't a very, uh, he wasn't a backslapper. He wasn't a, a promoter. He wasn't socially very smooth. He and my mother were not actually very social at all. Um, he, he was, uh, he could be a little abrasive sometimes. He, when he was, when he thought he was right about uh, an engineering issue, he, he could be, uh, as one of his fellow astronauts put it, uh, difficult, uh, quote unquote. Um, so, you know, I think there were probably, uh, oh, I, I'll, I'll point out one other thing too. As, as, you, as, you, as you probably know, there was a big divide back in those days uh, between the, uh, the test pilot astronauts and the, and the, and the so-called scientific astronauts mm. and the science astronauts. And, 
And, and uh, you know, we had guys like Armstrong and Joe Engel on one side, and, and, um, and then you had, you know, um, Harrison Smith and Joe Curl and those guys, uh, Owen Gary, the science astronauts on the other. And, and he wasn't really in either group. You know, he, in, in a way, he was brought into the program too soon because he hadn't, he hadn't received his Ph.D. in uh, electrical engineering yet. And he hadn't uh, he hadn't gone to test pilot school. He, he only had four years as a as a fighter pilot, which, believe it or not, uh, at NASA in those days didn't necessarily mean you were a great pilot, hmm. which seems strange to us. I mean, you know, flying off of aircraft carriers and, and back on to aircraft carriers seems like a pretty good uh, uh, attestation to me that uh, you're a good pilot. But you know, he was somewhere in the middle there. He didn't really have a, a, a group um, to associate with. So he you know he had a lot of he was lucky to get in so young. On the other hand, it, it didn't end up helping him much, uh, at least in the first uh, 10, 15 years of his career there. Yeah, I mean, so after that disappointment, I mean, do you remember what sort of spurred him to sort of stay with the agency and, and just keep going? Yeah, I think it was uh, – I, I, I think it was – I mentioned this in the book, and, and uh, um, I think it was pride. Um, I think it was um, maybe wounded pride even. You know, um, I, I, I mentioned uh, finding, and you know, when my dad died, um, he and my mom, it turns out, were, you know, borderline hoarders. They, they, they kept everything that, every scrap of paper they ever touched, it seemed like. And um, so... To this day, I'm still going through uh, files. Um, but one thing that I, that I found in in my dad's files was was not one, uh, not two, three. I found six copies of an article from November of 1973 that basically was titled um, "The Forgotten Astronaut" and it talked about how Bruce McCandless was a washout; he never got a flight, um, and. And uh, the chances were not looking good for him ever getting a flight. And and he hadn't gone out uh, and and clipped these articles himself. But but ironically, he'd been sent these articles by friends and and uh, and colleagues. Uh, and I you know I think it I think it really stung. Um, and I think he was determined to stick around. Um, until the bitter end, until they either kicked him out or he got a flight. Uh, but but he wasn't going to leave uh, on his own. And uh, you know the promise of the <coughs> of the space shuttle was that you know we'd have we'd have economical space travel uh, and, and frequent space travel um, sometime by the end of the seventies. So so there there was uh, you know there was a possibility for flight there in the future at some point. Um, and, and, and I, and I think his, his injured, uh, pride sort of compelled him to stay where he was and, and, uh, to, to work toward getting a flight on, on the, on the shuttle. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the shuttle kept like any big space project, uh, the, the timeline slipped and the expenses got higher. And, and, uh, so it was a frustrating time for him. And the, the late seventies generally were, were a difficult time for him and, and, um, uh, you know, it, it, it eventually worked out, but it certainly wasn't a given. Uh, and, and one thing that I admire about him was, was his, uh, unwillingness to, to go away. I mean, he, he, um, 
And we, we can talk a little bit more about that. Is that am I answered your question? I'm, yeah, I'm no, 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 absolutely. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. It's really fascinating. I mean, because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, when, when you've got a job, sometimes you feel as though you're out of a groove. But, you know, he can't have just been sitting there twiddling his thumbs. He must have found a groove at NASA that, you know, a kind of... A, a calling at NASA was 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 there anything sort of like an engineering project or, or or something like that 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 really kind of at least he had that and he was sort of progressing in that and felt and felt as though he was you know achieving something with that without you know yeah. regardless of the space flight element of it. Well, that's okay, Matthew. That's a, that's a great question, and and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, he he he. You know, you, you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't twiddle your thumbs there. I mean, you were surrounded by, and I'll, and I'll just backtrack here a minute. You know, one another reason why he didn't get a, a flight on Apollo is because, not because he was bad, it's because so many of those other guys were so damn good. You know, every everyone around you was Captain Kirk, basically. And, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, they, they were the, the best and the brightest for sure. So if, if you, you know, if there was anything you did that was, uh, that was uh, objectionable. You might you might fall behind the rest of the group. Um, but what he, he you ask if he found his niche, and and he, and he did. And, and the and the niche was working on what became the MMU. Now, just after he joined the space program in 1966, um, Gene Cernan went up uh, on one of the Gemini flights and uh, attempted to use what was called then the astronaut maneuvering unit, the AMU, which was an early version of the uh, of the MMU. It was a jetpack. Um, at, at that time, they were experimenting with using using hydrogen peroxide as the propellant, uh, and and um, Gene Cernan went uh, outside the Gemini craft, tried to work his way back to where the AMU was was basically uh, stowed on the, uh, on the on the exterior of the uh, of the capsule, and 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 basically could, had a had a tremendous difficulty getting there he he overexerted himself he, he had trouble with the uh, with the uh, with the tether uh his his visor started fogging up his heart rate was way up uh he, he finally got to the amu and managed to get himself uh, uh strapped in but uh by that point his vitals were 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 so askew that i think tom stafford made the call to he who was commanding the, the mission made the call to abort the uh, experiment. So he, you know, Gene Cernan came in um, abashed and, and somewhat embarrassed that he hadn't been able to do the, uh, do what he was, what he was tasked to do. Uh, and, and the AMU did not get a, did not get a test on Gemini. It, it was, uh, you know, he was supposed to do it. And then at, at one point, Buzz Aldrin was supposed to do it on Gemini 12. And, and, and it, it's funny, but if you look at the records, NASA sort of soured on on, uh, on use of the jetpack at that point, uh, and uh, it, like I said, it wasn't used in Germany. It wasn't planned for any use on Apollo, um, and and basically the next time it got a workout or a test, a, a chance basically was uh, was on Skylab, and so between '66 and, and 1973, uh, Bruce McCandless worked with a guy named Ed Whitsett. Uh, former Air Force officer and, and, and the engineers at NASA to develop uh, a working um, jetpack, and, and and so it was it was actually tested on Skylab on a couple of the on a couple of the missions, and and it wasn't tested outside; it was actually tested inside Skylab in the in the uh, orbital workshop, 
And uh, by that time, uh, McCandless and Whitsitt had, had worked out a lot of the kinks in the in the in the machine, and and uh, it, it it worked really well. In fact, Alan Bean said, "Hey, I'd, I'd have been willing to take it outside, uh, <laughs> even in 1973." Uh, and so the machine got a ringing endorsement from the astronauts who, who tried it out. And, and, uh, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was put on the back of the table for a possible use on, on the shuttle. And, um, and that was, that was Bruce McCandless's niche. And that was his, that was the way he kept going at NASA and, and, and how he, how he made his name. You know, he, he was, a, he was a great engineer a lot. And, and so was Ed Whitsitt. And, and they came up with what turned out to be this marvelous device. It's through that kind of engineering flair then that that meant that, that he could hang on to that dream of maybe one day actually getting a space flight. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he, some of the astronauts when they when they came to NASA, you know, they they were they were stuck in the Apollo Applications Program, which was which which meant that they were working on possibly impractical ideas that, you know, to use Apollo technology for various things. And, and uh, he was, he was one of those guys putting Apollo applications and, and part of his problem was that he liked it. And <laughs> he didn't realize he'd, <laughs> he'd been put in an uh, unattractive assignment maybe. And, and, and so like I said, he got involved with this jetpack idea after another astronaut named Ed Gibbons died in a car wreck and, uh, and just, and, and, and sunk his teeth into it and, and uh, you know, saw the thing, through from 66 to, to 84, basically. Uh, and even beyond, he was a big advocate for use of the MMU and, and uh, you know, despite NASA's misgivings about it. Because the MMU didn't become a kind of continual feature of on the International Space Station, you know, it, it, it's not used. Was that was that a, a source of disappointment? Or, you know, because you've been involved with the project for so long, it's quite hard to sort of, presume it's a baby that you can't let go, <laughs> let go of. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It, it was a uh, it, it was a disappointment. Um, like I say, uh, you know, after '86 and, and Challenger. Um, uh, well, I will say, as you know, so so the MMU was used in '84 when when Bruce McCandless and Bob Stewart uh, tested it out, and then uh, in a later flight that year, uh, Pinky Nelson went out and grabbed the Solar Max malfunctioning Solar Max satellite uh, due to not due to any problem with the MMU, but due to a, an issue related to um, how to attach to the uh, Solar Max. Uh, he wasn't able to use the MMU to do it, but the Solar Max satellite was recovered and, and, and eventually repaired. And then on a later flight than that, uh, astronauts Joe Allen and Dale Gardner used the MMU to successfully uh, go out and grab uh, a couple of malfunctioning uh, um, communication satellites. And, and the MMU worked I'm not going to say flawlessly, but it worked really well and did exactly what it was supposed to do. Um, and and you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't discontinued because it wasn't useful. It was discontinued because it was somewhat more dangerous and because people could do with the shuttle. Uh, you, you could get the sh you could get the, the orbiter itself close enough to do most of the tasks that uh, you know you could. Get the, get the orbiter close enough and have people go out with tethers and do things and you didn't have the added risk factor of someone floating away in the MMU. 
Um, but it, but the machine itself was 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 great, and and uh, and Bruce McCandless and and Ed Whitsitt and and other folks, uh, not only at NASA but at MMU, the chief contractor, were were, were disappointed that it wasn't used more, and and in fact. Uh, Engaged in a in a more or less uh, I won't say covert it was a fairly overt lobbying campaign to uh, to to get it used again even after uh, my dad left NASA and went to uh, Lockheed Martin uh, they were still coming up with ideas uh, um, and pitching them to NASA on how how to use the MMU so so yeah they they were disappointed I mean I think they were somewhat uh, mollified by the fact that uh, you know NASA adapted the MMU to become the safer. Uh, and, and, and like I said, that's, that is still used, uh, every time the astronauts go out of the space station, they put on this little device that is like a mini MMU. That's not the only space flight Bruce McCandless had, was it? The, uh, the, the, the MMU test. Well, right. So, so, um, uh, you know, 84 was the, 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 the cool MMU flight. Uh, and, and, and I think folks remember him. Uh, for that and that that uh, that great photograph, but I think he would have said uh, and and would like to have talked about um, his his role in in uh, not only deploying but actually designing and then later uh, assisting in the repair of uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, which, as you know, is having some problems as we speak today. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we we we, we, we we were talking earlier about someone who's working on. James Webb and, and laughing about how we hope they're we hope they're expediting matters because I mean I don't think Hubble's dead yet but it's it's uh, it's not looking good for the uh, for the little satellite that could um, as we call it I mean so 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 he got involved in in uh, in in Hubble it, it now I'm I'm I hope I'm remembering this correctly he first got involved around seventy uh, eight uh, and and um, the flight, you know, we talked about the shuttle design and production of the shuttle being delayed. Hubble was notorious for uh, for delays, just just as James Webb is actually notorious for delays and, and cost increases. But originally, uh, John Young was going to fly the fly the mission for deployment of Hubble, <clears throat> but um, in the in the uh, in the early eighties, uh, and then after, particularly after the Challenger explosion. Um, Bruce McCandless and, and Kathy Sullivan uh, and, and some of the great engineers at, uh, at Lockheed Martin were involved in, in uh, not only getting the, the, the Hubble Space Telescope ready to fly, but making sure that it could be repaired and maintained in space. And, and uh, Kathy Sullivan, whom you've had on your show, yep. um, and, and who is a, a brilliant woman, um, uh, has written a great book about that whole process. I, I, I don't go into it because, frankly, she, her, she knows a lot more about it than, than I do, and her book is, is pretty uh, authoritative on the subject. But they spent a lot of time um, making sure that people could go up and fix Hubble if need be. And as, as you know, after deployment in April of 1990 on uh, STS-31, um, sure enough, the, the Hubble needed some work. <laughs> that may be putting it mildly. Um, the the uh, the main mirror w- was was uh, not didn't have imperfections. It was ground uh, or how whatever they do to, to 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 mirror it was it was it was produced perfectly, but to do incorrect specifications, they, they they didn't get the specifications quite right. So as as you recall, 
um, STS 31, which was uh, Lauren Shriver and, and Charlie Bolden and Steve Holly, Kathy Solder, and Bruce McCandless, you know, they came back to Earth Heroes for deploying this this uh, this great telescope. And then within uh, just a few months, uh, they were, you know, NASA and, and, uh, and uh, sort of the subject of, uh, of a lot of jokes for, for putting up something that looked like it was going to be a huge waste of money. Uh, and and uh, it was a it was a big black eye for NASA. And, and it was until '93 NASA managed to set up a, a crew to, to to fix to to fix the space telescope, and of course it's been up there ever since. And and uh, you know it's it's hard to overstate the importance it's had for uh, for for our astronomers. Bruce McAllister carries on being involved with the, the the Hubble telescope at that point, doesn't doesn't he? He does. So, so he he um so he he was on the Hubble deployment mission in April of 1990, and then he retired from NASA after 24 years uh, in August of 1990, um, and immediately went to work for the uh, space time space uh, telescope science institute panel that was put together to try to figure out um, how to get the Hubble space telescope working properly and, and the members of that panel were, were were a pretty impressive group you know uh guys like jim crocker and, and even lyman spitzer who was the guy who first uh you know came up with the idea of not not the idea but came up with uh first prominent u.s advocate for for uh launching and using a, a space observatory uh and you know lots of ideas came in and and uh, the panel duly considered them all um bruce mccandless was on the, the panel because he's the guy who knew about what astronauts could and couldn't do in space uh w- with the telescope and he you know he was characteristically modest about his role he said uh, he was the auto mechanic on the committee and, and was the one who who had to figure out whether you know you actually could turn the bolts and and uh uh, you know, maneuver parts and that sort of thing inside the uh, inside the uh, the chassis, as it were, of, of the uh, of the telescope. Um, and 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 sure enough, you know, um, the, the panel managed to to put together a plan. Uh, Jim Crocker was really instrumental in that. I don't know if you know that story, but <clears throat> I, I can't tell it right because I don't understand the technical aspects well enough. But Jim Crocker was an engineer and really a smart guy who, who who came up with the idea for how to fix the Hubble when he was in Germany and was taking a shower and something about the shower mechanism and uh, uh, valves, you know, cued him into to a way that they might be able to, uh, to, to, to fix Hubble. And, and uh, that's, that's a story worth reading uh, right there. But anyway, they got it fixed and, and uh, you know, Hubble has been responsible for all sorts of discoveries ever since. Uh, you've talked about some of them on your show. I mean, it's it's been super important for discovering and 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 uh, studying exoplanets, for example. Um, and uh, I talked recently to I'm a graduate of the University of Texas in Austin here uh, in the U.S. and and uh, sure enough, the University of Texas Astronomy Department, um, a couple of the professors there are using the Hubble uh, even now. Well, maybe not now. Uh, as of two or three weeks ago, we're using it to study a, a, a comparatively new exoplanet. You know, some at, at some point when they talked about these numbers, I think it was you're gonna laugh. I think it was 379 light years. Is that is that even possible? Um, 
you know, studying yeah, I, these I, things. I, I keep forget. I keep forgetting because <laughs> they're so astronomical. The numbers that you go, I, I have I got that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I don't. I, I literally have trouble believing. In fact, I said that to one of these guys, and and uh, uh, I said, uh, <coughs> you're not, you're not capable of d- directly imaging something like that, right? And and you're you're basically just intuiting this. <laughs> you're, you're basically fabricating your research, aren't you? And, and, uh, and, and, you know, he said, no, we're, we're able uh, to, to, they're using some little nano band of the infrared. Hmm. Your, your co-host Lynn would know <laughs> better how to talk about this, but yeah, I mean, so, so Hubble's been instrumental in figuring out that there are, you know, black holes in the center of other galaxies and, uh, trying to pinpoint the the age of the not pinpoint, trying to estimate the age of the universe and and uh, and all kinds of things. And 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 the joke was that uh, when when the astronauts, when you know McCandless and and Kathy Sullivan, and Steve Hawley, who by the way, you know probably one of NASA's smartest astronauts, uh, they were all joking before the mission that uh, you know they they they'd gone ahead and destroyed their astronomy books before leaving because. Hubble was going to rewrite them all, and, and uh, you know, to a certain extent, they, they were correct. I mean, I, I think just for public outreach, Hubble Space Telescope's been one of the most extraordinary successes of NASA. Full stop. Yeah, and I I I, I think that's a, a good estimation, and and you know, James Webb is going to be extraordinary as well, but I, I don't think it's going to have quite. I'm not sure it's going to produce quite the same pictures. I, no. I have you, you you probably I, th- I think you guys talked about that. Yeah, you, we you, we you mentioned. That. Yeah, well, we mentioned yeah. it. I think I think I think you're right. It's going to be hard to have the sort of like you said, the pillars of creation is is in optical light or thereabouts. Yeah, <laughs> but it, you know, enhanced maybe yeah. enhanced. Yeah, but but it's like false color. But it, but it's still something that the eye can you know the human brain can kind of understand. I think I think there'll be amazing imagery from James Webb, but perhaps not so. Perhaps not so immediate as the as the as the Hubble stuff because yeah. I mean it always reminds me of the picture of the black hole. You know that 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 picture of a black hole that they did a couple of years ago is mind blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing if you're. If yeah. you're I think especially yeah. if you're an astrophysicist, but if you're a punter, if you're just a normal person, it's like it doesn't look as good as the picture of the black hole on the film Interstellar. It's like, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> but whereas I think, you know, Hubble's pictures were better than were better than the images that you'd had in movies up until that point. You know, it's been so influential on, on film and the way that we portray space and everything else, you know, because it's... Yeah, and no, I, uh, I think that's a great point. It, it, it's almost like it went, it went even beyond the imaginations of, of, of folks who, you know, who, who tried to, to envision that sort of thing for movies and, and, and artwork and that sort of, yeah. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, I guess it, it's brought the sort of beauty of space into people's lives, hasn't it? It's, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's reveal yeah. it's, you know, it's opened up a window in, that we'd never really seen before. And I think, yeah, I mean, just to be part, just to be part of that, well, to I mean to be not just a part, but like obviously an incredibly important part of of you know yeah. not just once but twice <laughs> to get the space. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think that, like I said, I think that was uh, you know I think that was his proudest. I think that's the project he was proudest of. Yeah, because uh, that must. With, yeah. I mean, that must have been that must have been quite a moment when he retired from NASA 
anyway to have worked for a, an agency for that long or to you know work in any job for that long and then go somewhere else i mean that's- yeah <clears throat> well <clears throat> you know it's a good point he he um he, he he was at NASA for for 24 years, which is a which is a long a long stay certainly. And then he went uh, to work for Lockheed Martin uh, after a brief stint with the uh, Space uh, Telescope Science Institute folks. Uh, and and you know in 20, 2014 um, when my when my mom passed away. Uh, I was talking to him and he revealed that he was still working for Lockheed Martin. Uh, and so he, he went from 24 years at NASA to 24 years at, uh, at Lockheed Martin. And so that's, you know, 48 years of, uh, uh aeronautical, astronomical, I guess it's aeronautical engineering, space engineering. Uh, uh and you know, there's only one way to explain that. And that is, uh, he'd love doing it. I mean, he, he, we haven't talked much about his his early life, but uh, like like a lot of folks who get into um, um, who work for NASA or go into space exploration generally, um, he wanted to do this from the time he was very young, uh, and, and he talks about reading um, Willie Lay, you know, the, the German hmm. uh, science writer, uh, and and being captivated by the illustrations of. Uh, Chesley Bonestell, who was who was sort of the Hubble Space Telescope of his day, you know, who, wrote, who basically composed these 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 crazy, moody, somber, but somehow beautiful uh, uh, space tableau of, of yeah, amazing people, yeah. yeah, landing on these you know uh, <laughs> uh, purple moons and and uh, you know, yeah. I mean, they're they're still pretty captivating, believe it or not. You can go back and oh, yeah, I love them. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. love that, all that early art. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, so, so he, you know, from the time he was 10, certainly his, his mother sometimes claimed, uh, from the age of three, which I think was a, <laughs> which I think was an example, <laughs> but from the time of, uh, he was 10, he was, he was wanting to do this. And, and, uh, you know, he, he, despite the frustrations, uh, uh, for a period of his career, I think he, he got to do exactly what he wanted to do. And he went on to work at, at Lockheed Martin on, on, uh, uh, on the, uh, the Mars, um, uh, was it the uh, the Phoenix, not the Polar Explorer, but the uh, the Phoenix uh, probe that, that that landed successfully, and and uh, worked with the the company in acquiring uh, the Russian rockets, and, and uh, you know had a, had a had a, a pretty interesting career even after even after leaving NASA. Um, so so and some of that's in the book too. But, um, I, I didn't, you know, some of that stuff. I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's the astronaut stuff that's interesting. But, but I do talk a little bit about his career after that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's all, it, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how people develop. And because, I mean, one question that you can obviously answer more directly than, than virtually anyone else is, what's it like having a dad go into space, particularly, you know, a space flight after uh, a, a, the shuttle disaster? Yeah, uh, you know what, yeah. what? What? What's it like to be? You know, because you because presumably you're, you were older than a lot of children are when they're you know children of astronauts are usually quite young, aren't they? But you, you but you would have been older. What? Yeah. What was it like? Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's I think that's a good point. Um, you know, 
we're, we're, I grew up in El Lago, which was which was one of the I think there were you know three sort of communities where where a lot of the astronauts lived. One was El Lago, and one was Timber Cove, and and another was Nassau Bay, and they were they were all you know south and south south and east of the uh, of the manned spacecraft center, later the Johnson Space Space Center, and and uh, um, so so yeah, I knew a lot of the uh, the families and kids uh, in, in the Apollo program, and and you're you're right. I mean, it was you know it was a different experience uh, for for some of those kids when their dads uh, went up. Uh, and and it, it was it was probably a pretty daunting experience, I would think, you know, to be an eight year old kid and have, you know, the news vans uh, parked outside your house and, and uh, your mom frantic with worry and and, um, and not quite understanding what's going on. I mean, I was like I said, I was 22. I, I, I didn't understand what was going on either, but I was I was considerably older and, and I was a grad student over there in the United Kingdom and uh, watched most of it on uh, on TV. And I, I think, you know, Dad was on the 11th shuttle mission, and I, I, I don't think we had a real sense that it was dangerous at that point. Well, some people probably did. I, I didn't have a real sense that it was dangerous at that point. I mean, we, we hadn't had any, uh, any, any in-space fatalities in the American space program uh, at that point. Um, so, so I was... I was excited. I was, I was intrigued. I wasn't worried. Um, I was a little embarrassed. The, the, uh, the press tracked me down at Reading and the administration asked me to have some photographs taken. So I, they managed to get me holding up a photograph, like a newspaper headline with my you know dad's flight. And I was next to a space invaders video game. Or something like that. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, but no, I was, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly worried. I mean, I mean sure. Yeah, I couldn't, Surely that surely you must have had like ultimate bragging rights next next to your fellow students. I mean that, that yeah, that was fun. I mean, I mean that that's you know. the ultimate chat up line in a in a student bar, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, it, it was it was cool, and and uh, and and you know, British people are so wonderful that. They'll act interested even if they're not interested, and, and uh, <laughs> um, you know. So I was able to to to, uh, to talk about it to, to my heart's content, and, and 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 I mean, you know, perfectly to 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 be sincere. I mean, my friends there, um, uh, especially my friend Dave Taylor, who's, who who was in graduate school with me, were, were very excited, very supportive, and 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 you know probably more fascinated by the whole thing than I was. I, I was, I, I, you know, we, we were just glad that he finally got a flight. So, yeah, um, now, was that, I mean, cause, was that because you'd sort of grown up in that, that whole culture of like, oh, your next door neighbor has gone up on a flight and, oh, one of my other neighbors has gone up on a flight. So it just becomes a, I mean, <laughs> was, had you, was it, had it sort of been normalized and, and, and therefore like your, your, Fellow yeah, students, your, your friends would have gone. This is amazing, but you're slightly more, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah no, it's I, all right. I, <laughs> right, I think that's. I think that's. Uh, I think that's exactly right. You know, my my mom and dad were were not very sociable people, and and they weren't. I won't, I'm gonna say that sounds bad. They weren't unpleasant people. They weren't uh, discourteous people. They they were they were nice. They were nice people, but but uh, they didn't socialize much, especially with the with the NASA crowd. Uh, and they were always very 
anxious to 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 let us know that my sister and let my sister and me know that you know there was nothing special about us. Uh, you know, Dad might be going up in space, but hey, uh, he's he's worked for it. Uh, you guys haven't worked for anything, and, and uh, uh, you know there may be press, but there may be tourist buses outside. There may be journalists coming to talk to uh, talk to you. Just uh, you know, don't have anything to do with them. Um, uh, you're just normal people, and and you know, tourist buses never showed up outside our house. You know, if, if they're if they're out there, I'm still waiting to see them. I and we never got journalists at our house. You know, because Dad didn't have a flight. Uh, you know, the, the, certainly that was a, that was the case for the Hayes and, and the, the Russes and and, uh, and and folks like that. But um, you know, we, we, I suppose it was kind of normalized. And like I say, we, we didn't have a sense. I didn't have a sense then that the settle was going to turn out to be as uh, as uh, as risky as it as as it really was. So so I I, I was not particularly worried. My you know I can't say the same for my mom and my sister. I, I wasn't here for the launch, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure my mom would have been uh, more or less terrified. What, what, did you did you uh, go to see the second launch? On I did. Yeah, launch? I was um, I was I was working in New York City at the time, and I <clears throat> went down for the uh, the launch. And it, the first time, I think it was I think it was called off. I think it was delayed, postponed for a couple of weeks. So I went back to New York, and then. The second time went down and, and everything went went off and, and that was that, that was um, that was a little bit uh, more nerve wracking because you know obviously some events had occurred in the meantime, um, but but it was a you know but it was exciting as well and 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 uh, I I don't know I mean I I didn't really I guess you know I was like I said I was older by then I was I was uh, you know twenty eight twenty nine so. So I was mostly concerned about, you know, being there for my mom, who was a nervous wreck and, and uh, um, you know, trying to be calm and, and uh, uh, NASA like myself. <laughs> and what, what about what about when the shuttle lands? Is that a is that a moment of oh, it's landed? It's it's. Oh, you know, uh, was it was it uh, I think I think it was the, the MMU mission that was actually the first to land back in Florida. Um, but I wasn't there for either one, so I don't know. <laughs> I, right. I, I think it's the launch. I think it's the, I think it's the launch that's really the the nerve wracking part. I, I know I know I know reentry isn't uh, isn't isn't particularly safe either. So, you know the, the front end and the back end are, are the dangerous parts. But uh, uh, certainly my mom was there. My sister may have been there too, but I, I was not there for either of the of the returns. Um, but they went well. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, when you when you is is there a sort of moment in the book when you were researching this book that 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 took you a little bit by surprise, a story that you hadn't kind of really known about before? You know, one one thing that I, that I didn't that I didn't realize uh, about uh, about about my dad um, was that uh, you know, he, he and my my mother Bernice. Uh, we're, we're both uh, we're both big uh, conservationists. They were animal uh, animal I won't say animal rights people. They were animal uh, rehabilitation people, big big uh, advocates for the environment and that sort of thing. And, and that was that was unusual um, in the in the in the '70s, and particularly unusual in Houston, which was which was gaining the reputation for being the energy capital of the world. You know, sort of the oil and gas drilling capital of the world. And 
Um, and, and, you know, my dad uh, in particular was involved in, you know, rescuing and, and uh, rehabilitating injured birds and, and uh, animals and that sort of thing. And, and uh, <clears throat> was eventually served as president of the, of the Houston Audubon Society, which is a, a big bird watching bird conservation group here in, in Houston. And, and um, you know, I, I, I sort of knew about that and, and actually was involved in some of the activities associated with that, uh, with conservation. Like we helped to uh, clean up a area of Houston that was later turned into a nature preserve. But I didn't realize um, how it may have affected his his career at NASA. He had sort of a reputation for being a little bit of a a little bit of a crank about environmental matters. And, and uh, uh, at one point, he was actually made <laughs> even after the travails of missing out on Apollo and, and Skylab. You know, in the, in the, in the late seventies, he was he was tasked with being the bird con, bird control officer. Uh, for for landings down at the Kennedy Space Center and and, uh, and, and I, you know I've always wondered whether that was uh, legitimate or whether that was an attempt whether that was uh, an ironic uh, assignment but uh, his job was to figure out how to keep the astronauts safe from from uh, from impact with uh, with with birds um, uh, down there at uh, uh, down there at the uh, Cape Canaveral area. And, 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 you know, it wasn't entirely an idle uh, worry. I mean, you know, Ted Freeman was an astronaut who was killed in the, in the 60s when his uh, T-38 was impacted by a, uh, by a bird. Um, so so it, it, it did happen. But uh, uh, I, I sometimes, you know, one astronaut in an interview said that sometimes it seemed like he was more interested in, in, in saving the birds than, than in getting a flight. And I, I can assure you that was not the case. But... I think I think at times his environmental uh, his environmental interests may have may have uh, you know, impacted his uh, his his career development, and that was a little bit of a surprise. It's not a disappointing surprise. I mean, it's kind of cool, but but um, uh, and actually found a book he kept back in the '70s that related to animal rehabilitation. When he talks about um, you know rescuing a, or finding and 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 and, and tending for three. Uh, baby screech owls whose mother had been poisoned with some sort of organophosphate compound, and and uh, you know, so so that that was interesting and fun to read about. Um, the other thing that that I thought was interesting was um, I found a uh, from my, you know I think I mentioned that my mom and dad just kept everything. I, I found a file from 1961 uh, that related to a. Uh, a crash. Uh, my, my, my you know, Bruce McCandless was flying a, uh, 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 I think it was the the A four, uh, which was the A four, the Skyhawk, I believe. Anyway, he had uh, he had um, taken off from the USS Forrestal. As a, he was a young fighter pilot, and and uh, and, and and you know performed a, a mission. And when he came back to land on the aircraft carrier, uh, the arresting wire actually tore off of piece of the rear end of the, of the jet aircraft. And, and, uh, you know, so he was, he was faced with the, the situation every, every, uh, Navy aircraft pilot, uh, dreads, which is you, you've just scrubbed a whole lot of speed, uh, to get down on the deck of, of the carrier. Uh, the arresting wire hasn't stopped you. 
you're coming, you're still moving and you're heading for the end of the runway. What do you, you know, what do you do? Well, he made the right call and, you know, he, uh, he, uh, he shoved the plane into, he turned, you know, he, he activated the afterburner and, and, and basically uh, took off uh, again, was able to get the, the plane back off the aircraft carrier, but uh, he was radioed from the, from the ship that is, that the plane was on fire and he looked back and sure enough, there was a 50 foot plume of fire coming out of the back of the plane. And um, uh, he, he didn't, he couldn't, he couldn't activate the uh, eject mechanism and he was afraid he was going to have to, uh, do something extremely dangerous, which was basically roll the plane over to one side and, and basically bail out. Uh, either that, or just put the put the plane down in the water. Neither one of those options was a very good one. So, so he kept fighting and finally got the um, what's called the, the, the mast to come down over his face uh, and, and ejected. And at the, you know, ejecting from a jet aircraft is is a, is a hazardous maneuver in and of itself, but. Uh, he was able to get out and parachuted down into the Mediterranean and the helicopters came to get him and it, and it turned out okay, but, uh, you know, it was a dangerous moment and, and it was, uh, something and maybe even worse, you know, the Navy and its bureaucratic majesty, you know, investigated the crash and tried to figure out what had happened. And so he spent, you know, several nerve wracking months waiting for the verdict of the, the Navy panel to, uh, on what had occurred and why. Uh, and it turned out there was a, a crack in the, underside of the jet and the resting wire and you know that's why the, the mechanism had failed and it wasn't because he was going too fast or something like that so so he was exonerated and his career survived uh, um, to to you know that, that would could have been a crippling blow and he would never really talk about that I, I i mean i might have heard about it once or twice my mom mentioned it but he would never mention it uh certainly would never talk about it of his own accord at least when we were young, and and uh, so I was fascinated to read that and read all the uh, witness statements and and uh, you know description of the equipment and you know airspeed and conditions and that sort of thing, and and uh, finally get a chance to to understand a little bit more about my my dad that he would not have talked about uh, himself. I mean, it it must be an, an amazing thing to write a book about your dad and then realize just just i mean it, it's a pretty extraordinary life isn't it really <laughs> it, it, it it is uh, you know as as uh, uh as his brother his, his brother is a very um a very intelligent and an accomplished man himself and and uh his 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 measured response to uh, to, to that sort of question that i asked him was that, you know he was an extraordinary person and and i and i hope you know, I mean, he wasn't a perfect person, but I, but I hope the fact that he was an extraordinary person comes across in in, in the book. Um, you know, so and that's you know that whole ejecting from the uh, from the jettercraft uh, story is is one reason why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite funny how many that how many times that the ejecting from a, a, a critically dangerous situation seems to repeat across all the. You know the Neil Armstrongs and the John Youngs. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. You know, Armstrong what? certainly uh, did it, and uh, uh, Jim Lovell almost didn't do it. Mike Collins <laughs> was injured in a in a in a crash, I think, uh, injured his back. Yeah. So so I, maybe that's a you know a fighter pilot uh, badge of honor, or 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 maybe it's an indication that you, you weren't flying right. I don't know, but, but uh, <laughs> you're right. It does seem to have occurred quite a bit. I, I was going to say Armstrong walked away from you know several life endangering occasions. Uh, incidents so 
he may have been the uh, he may have been the most extraordinary of all. Yeah, I mean, is is a lot of the book is a lot of the book done from like you said, if you, your dad kept like hundreds and hundreds of you know files and kept everything hoard, hoarded. <laughs> um, yeah. The um, is 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 a lot of it from that, or is a lot of it from your own recollections of the of the time and the events yourself? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean. It, you were asking very early on, you know, where did the urge to write the book come from? And, and, you know, part of it was the feeling that, Hey, this is something that he wanted to write, but he never got around to doing it. Um, another thing was another reason for doing this. Cause I, I realized that I had, I had the source, I had the sources. I mean, my dad was his own archivist in a sense. And, and, um, you know, basically, uh, Everything I needed was 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 contained uh, in an entirely haphazard fashion in you know, 400 boxes. So all I had to do was <laughs> look through the 400 boxes, and I was I was good. And then, you know, so that's I, I hope that's I hope that's most of the book. I mean, the book's about him, but but I, I couldn't write it. I couldn't write it. I felt like in an interesting fashion without talking a little bit about our lives and in, in um, down in the Clear Lake area and then. And I probably talk a little bit more about our family and, and uh, my relationship with him. I probably talk about that a little bit more than I should have, but but it was it, it was hard to resist. And um, uh, um, so I, you know, I'd say it's it's probably two thirds history and archival material and, and and straight biography, and another third more impressionistic discussion of the times and and. Um, cultural issues and political issues that sort of thing when when does the book come out uh so it comes out uh, here in uh, on on july 13th i think is the uh is the official release date we're, we're actually hoping to have copies before that and then uh it may be later slightly later there in the uk yeah i've i think i think i've got a date here of the 29th of july on, on the uk amazon that's what i'm going by so i think it might um, i think it looks like it's then I had the materials and, and uh, it's a first-hand knowledge. And I was also helped by some, some great folks uh, at NASA and, and uh, at Lockheed Martin and, um, and some of the, uh, some of the guys my, my dad worked with uh, Kathy Sullivan was real helpful. Hoop Gibson was, was helpful. I talked to uh, Jack Lausma and, and Fred Hayes a little bit as well. So, uh, so, you know, I'm sure there are lots of mistakes in there. They're, they're, they're nobody's fault but mine. Um, but uh, hopefully, I put together a, a decent, decent read for everybody. Yeah. What was your sort of main takeaway from the, the kind of whole experience of writing about a singular person, whether it's your dad or not? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's. Uh, it, I think I, you know a lot of biographers have said this, and and um, and 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 I, and I can understand a little bit. But now, as you, you end up, you end up sacrificing a little bit of your own life to, to, to focus on, on, on someone else's and, and uh, what they were dealing with and what they were, what they were thinking about. And, and uh, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, if, if you admire the person you're writing about, then I think it's worth it. Um, on the other hand, at some point you have to disengage and, and uh, go back to, 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 to live in your own life as well. Um, you know, what, I guess what I was impressed with, Really, what I was impressed with with my with my dad was his his um, his refusal to, to to go away to give up. I mean, even after uh, 
you know, in 78, when my dad had been there for 12 years, hadn't gotten to fly, was, was, was pretty disappointed that he hadn't. Uh, and then, you know, this new group of, you know, 35 bright young astronauts who come into the program and, and, uh, you know, Mike Mullane's written about that and said, um, you know, we all wondered what the heck these old guys were doing and why they were hanging around because, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they were, they were dinosaurs and, 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 uh, you know, Bruce McCandless was one of those guys and, and it was right around this time that he was made bird control officer. And so <laughs> oh, yeah. he, he, you know, I just can't, I, I just, that's, that's tough. And he's got these articles in his files saying, Hey, you know, you're a washout. And, and, uh, and, and he finds it within himself to, uh, to, to, to keep working. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, um, the shuttle was his opportunity and, and he figured out how to lobby for himself and to lobby for the project. And, you know, there was a, a satellite called the Solar Max satellite that went up and you know, functioned for about six months, and then then went kaput. Uh, and and he immediately saw this as a way to to, to use the MMU. Hey, we're going to you know, so we're going to we're going to take the MMU and run out there and and uh, and grab the Solar Max and bring it back to the shuttle, and we'll fix it. And um, it took a while for that idea to catch on. Um, and, and there are notes that I that I was able to look at and, and talked about a little bit in the book where he was having to lobby not only at NASA but lobby indirectly members of Congress to get the funding for it. And, and uh, there's a story in there where he enlists the aid of Jack Lastman and Jack Smith to talk to a recalcitrant congressman about the project. And he's told, "Look, Bruce, stop making this into a science project and tell them what how you're going to save the country money." And you know and, and, and What's the point? And, and uh, so he, he, he quickly was able to recalibrate his message to say, hey, we're going to go out there and get the satellite and fix it. So we're not going to be wasting you know, millions of dollars. Uh, and and that, that seemed to help. So, Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's like it's, it's the ultimate example of someone that stays on the bus long enough instead of getting off and restarting another journey somewhere else, isn't it, really? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good way to put it. It is really funny, but out of out of the sort of space shuttle astronauts, I, I can't name many. It's uh, Bruce McCandless is definitely one of those ones that you know is is a big name, and and it it perhaps is the most iconic image of a spaceman. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it it might be. Yeah, and I, you know, there's a great photograph of Ed White back in '65 doing his his uh, spacewalk, but but uh, certainly this one is uh, is right up there, and and. Um, I spend a little bit of time in the book, you know, talking about why we think it's such an interesting image. I, I, that that part you may find uh, is impressionistic and entirely spurious, but but, uh, <laughs> but I, I try. No, but I mean, <laughs> it shows up on all over the place. I was driving in Houston last year, and I was we were my wife and I were driving on the freeway, and a furniture truck went by us and had a big image of, of Bruce McCandless and the MMU for some reason associated with furniture sales, and, and uh, you know, so you never know where you're going to see it. Um, <laughs> no, it's, sure. but it, but even it's, it's even sort of referenced, even without the image being there, that whole, that whole sort of, whenever you see that someone being lonely on a, on a, you know, on a, often it's space, but it can even be like a drift at sea. Somehow it's referencing that, yeah. that photo. Cause it, it is about kind of just utter sort of isolation and like Ever that's it you're just yeah. the one human there it's like it, it is it's an it's an it's an incredible image yeah I mean, it's an incredible image i think you're absolutely right i think it's the the, the 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 video footage at the time didn't quite 
land, but it just goes to show the importance of an image. I, I guess it goes back to that that Hubble thing as well, isn't it? That that uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, Bruce McCandless was involved in involved indirectly and directly with with some of the most important space <laughs> inspirational yeah. photography out there, right? Absolutely. So so the importance, you know, the takeaway message is. Stay on the bus. Stay on the bus. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, <laughs> I say it to my students a lot. Staying on the bus is a very is a is a is a, and, and this is the the ultimate the ultimate example of it. Well, well, thanks very much. I've I've uh, taken a long time out of your time. No, well, Matthew, thank you. I've, I'm a, I've, like I said, I've, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of the show. Enjoyed. Well, your, that's, that's your, brilliant. Thank you. Episodes of uh, uh, on exoplanets and nuclear propulsion and and. Uh, uh, the Expanse. Uh, oh I'm yeah. A fan of that show. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm, I, I'm, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thrill for me to be on the show. So thank well, you. Yeah. I mean, did, did you watch the uh, For All Mankind? Because that's your. Yeah, we're we're actually uh, my wife and I and my one of my daughters are are actually watching it now. I think we've watched either three or four episodes from the first season, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I like it. It's it gets a lot of things right. I mean, some of the actual. Know they're not using Ellington Air Force Base yeah. for their actual. For, that's not it, and they're not using Highway Three, and the outpost doesn't really look that way. But but they they do a good job of getting the feel of it right, and and, uh, uh, and we're enjoying it. I mean, you know, uh, who knows if the Soviets had been able to oh. keep the N one rocket pointed the right way, and and uh, um, maybe it would have worked. The, I don't know. It's it's kind of fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Do you like it? Are you a fan? Uh, no, absolutely. I, I I've enjoyed that more than. I think any, I mean, there's been quite a lot of space programs recently, and I think I've enjoyed that more than any of them. The, the second season is 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 brilliant. It's so good. Oh, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes, it's very, very good. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous that you're watching it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> right well well thanks very much i'll let you i'll let you get on with the rest of your day and um uh and, and i can't wait to read this book the interplanetary podcast is alive there we go julio so mud what do you what do you think of the interview well like i said i i, I love that interview i think he's a really really nice guy you know he's a he's a proper pro writer so it's it's one of those space books that that actually you know, is a joy to read. What else has he? What else has he written about? He doesn't normally write about space. That's he's, why I'm, know, I'm wondering what what is his main line of work. He normally writes fiction, poems, stories, essays. Writes for the Seattle Review, the Asian Wall Street Journal. He's a writer, basically. This is very special that he got to do this book, as as he explains. Yeah, uh, I found it quite touching because his dad wanted to do it or was about to do it, and it's sort of a passing the torch and completing that. Yeah. It's a way to make your parent live a little bit longer in your heart. Yeah. Right? I like the quote in there as well that about, you know, you have to give up a little bit of your life in writing about someone else's life. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? He talks a little bit about the experience of these astronauts going to to space and, and you guys talk a little bit about the age of the kids, right? Hmm. And we mentioned in the past, John Glenn, his first flight had... a uh, 40% chance of failure, correct? Mm. Is that the fear? Yeah. I don't exactly remember the source, but the point that, that was that for John Glenn, his kids were also sort of at university level, so they would understand better the risks involved. Mm. While when Apollo went to the moon, while Apollo 11 went to the moon, the, the kids were, uh, I actually don't know, six, well, ten, that, yeah, that age yeah, range, all, you know? like Yeah, 
they're all very young, so they're just about old enough to understand what's going on, but not quite old enough to understand. And your dad is going into space that I'm not sure. It would be interesting to ask some of them at some point, those that were at that age, I'm not sure what you feel if you are aware of the dangers and risks, especially in those times, right? If your dad says, I'm going to come back, you, you believe them, don't you? But I wonder if there is a little bit of trauma in there. Yeah, but as a parent, as a parent, I would never give that promise because you don't know you're oh. going to come back. Oh, well, deep. yeah, I don't. <laughs> that is deep. Yeah, yeah, I mean, crikey. Yeah, I don't know. But I well, found that very touching because I always thought how, when you have kids so young, you would strap yourself onto a rocket. But then again, uh-huh. that's what these guys did all the time. They raised their lives all the time in planes and as test pilots. So it's just part of it, right? Difficult to to understand yeah. myself, but uh, that's that's the life. Go back to the original quote. There are a subset of members who are willing to put their lives at risk to push the boundaries of our existence. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of those are fathers and mothers. Another part that I found quite interesting was the the one that he mentions his his dad and his mom educating the kids to not feel special because his dad was an astronaut that they were just normal yeah. people and how much he emphasized that the parents were not socialites uh, the socialite yeah. type i found it very very interesting because so you don't grow entitled you know that you don't expect more because of who your dad is or 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 this sort of approach and that's some good education there from the yeah. parents to the kids. And, yeah. and then, of course, yes, as you mentioned, the, the Hubble, which personally I find that mission way cooler than the MMU one. Mm. Because what's interesting, and uh, I think we mentioned it in the past because we interviewed Kathy Sullivan, right? Mm. Uh, during the, the Hubble deployment mission, Kathy and Bruce McCandles, they were in the airlock, preparing to assist in case of a mishap during the, the, the Hubble deployment, right? And uh, some of the solar panels were a little bit stuck. So Kathy and Bruce McCandle suited up and were preparing at the airlock to go outside in case that was needed. So, I mean, in the end, they didn't have to, but they were in the airlock doing the, the let's say, the pre-breathing, the preparation, suiting up in a way, in a literal way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and always then that story that they were the closest to the Hubble and the only people on Earth that could not see <laughs> the deployment of the Hubble. And that all of their oh. colleagues in the cockpit of the shuttle could see it live through the window, but not Amazing. them because they were in the airlock. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing that we got to interview Kathy and, and now we get to interview the son of uh, yeah. Bruce McCandles. It's You are right. I mean, I think I think Hubble's obviously way more important than the MMU. And the fact that obviously Bruce McCandless was was involved in was deeply involved in Hubble. You know, that's you know Well, I mean the MMU is as cool as a jetpack can get. We yeah. were promised oh, jetpacks <laughs> decades ago and I'm still waiting. Yeah. Um yeah, but the Hubble just changed humankind. Yeah, still struggling a little bit. So let's hope it hangs on for till James Webb can take over. <laughs> yeah, which by the way, uh, again, Kathy uh, and and Bruce uh, worked on the 
serviceability of the Hubble. We talked a little bit oh. about before, but they worked together on designing uh, together with huge teams of engineers, obviously. Um, but yeah, testing the tools that they would use during their EVAs, you know, when Kathy mm. um, and Bruce McCandles were involved with all that design that later was used during the actual service missions of the Hubble. So they, they had connection to that on other than the, the, the deployment mission itself. They, they left their, yeah, their mark in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people just think of astronauts as just having that one job of going to space and and just doing the bit in space. But of course, their job is way, 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 way more than that. Engineers, scientists, doctors, yep. whatever. But they are whatever the, the background is. But yeah, you have yep. lots of things to do. And yep. I mean, just I recall the interview with um, uh, Matthias Maurer. And yeah. all the, I mean, he was ma uh, doing management at some point and all those uh, expeditions to test, uh, to exactly mm. like this, yeah. to test tooling yeah. in case of uh, planetary expeditions. Yeah, appar apparently it's only Thomas Pesquet that's a little bit lazy, doesn't really do anything other than flying. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. You I just Brits, made that up. You Brits. <laughs> really cannot have a successful French going around. Eh? <laughs> no, I don't know why I picked on Thomas Pesquet. I think it was because I saw him today showing off on the International Space Station. He was doing some chin-ups. Well, he's a very good-looking you know? guy, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, well, he was looking really buff as well. He's looking Trez Hench. <laughs> yeah, man, if, if I looked like that, I would be posing for photos all the time. Yeah, true. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe when he comes back, he can be the next Superman or something. Oh yeah, the, in Marvel they have, in the X-Men they have Gambit, which is sort of Frenchy. <laughs> I know someone, <laughs> someone who knows better would kill me. Yeah, there you go. You could, you, you, you could have Thomas Pesquet as, as that. I don't know how good of an actor he would be. Maybe he's just too serious a person really to be doing frivolous things like that, Julio. I don't know why you started picking on Thomas. I, anyway. I did not <laughs> on Thomas Pesquet. <laughs> actually, actually, he's a he's a very lovely guy. He's a very lovely guy. But you know, astronauts are really busy people. <laughs> but the time I met Wait. him, he was super nice. Matthias is still our favorite, isn't he? Yes, but that's because he studied part of his career in Argentina. I mean, there is a, there is something else oh. there, you know. Yeah, actually, Tim Peake's my favorite. Actually, Helen Sharman's. Oh, I don't know who my favorite is, Julio. I've decided I'm not going well, to have a favorite. Uh, probably my most favorite astronaut of all times would be Gus Grissom. Or my favorite's John Young. See, that, that oh. came easy, right? Only because SDS won. That's just got to be the most ridiculous flight of all time, surely. Yeah. I mean, Gus Grissom, I, I don't know, there's just something to it. Had it not been for Apollo 1, there, some say that he would have been the first man on the moon. Hmm. But you could say that Alexei Leonov, Yuri Gagarin, can't let those two off either. They're I think Yuri Leonov, Gagarin. Okay, Leonov is up there as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, Julio, we better, we, better, we better finish this one up or else... So I can actually well, what watch else, the end What of the else football. would you do rather than recording this right, right, that's it. You are so bad. You're so bad. <laughs> oh, sugar and Italy have equalized. Oh, that's horrible. Okay, Matt. But anyway. I think I will release we, you and let you watch football. I might even watch a little bit myself. Yeah. I and was, I hope I, I hope you win. Then, then we can have a, 
double happy weekend. Um, yeah. My team won the Copa America, and yours maybe, maybe you we'll know anything. Oh, that's making me feel sick. It's making me feel sick. Right. Bye, bye, Spotcats. Yeah.